Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I am your host, Trent Werner. Today, we have a very special deal deep dive segment. We are joined by Jake Harris. Jake is the founder and managing partner of Grupo Iconic and Harris Bay Private Equity Real Estate Group. Jake has decades of experience investing in all different types of real estate and commercial development. Jake is the host of the Passive Wealth Principles podcast and a best-selling author of the book, Catching Knives. Jake has a master's degree in international real estate and strives to guide investors into a world of passive income through commercial real estate. Now let's welcome Jake Harris. Awesome, Jake. Thanks so much again for joining me today. I'm excited to hear about the deals that we're going to discuss. But first, I'd love for you to take a quick minute to introduce yourself to our listeners who may have not heard of you before. Sure. I expect that most people haven't heard of me just because, you know, it's only got like a handful. I think, you know what? I have like 7,000 people that follow me on Instagram. So that seems like it's shocking amount to me. I've written a book called Catching Knives, a guide to investing in distressed real estate. You probably already, you know, mentioned some of those things, but you know, I've been doing real estate for 20 years, for two decades. I've invested into lots of flips. Then I've gotten in the last eight years into commercial real estate and I run a boutique, you know, private equity real estate company. And I love real estate. I mean, it is, I got kicked in the teeth in 2007, 2008 and was, if you read in the book, you know, I was sitting on a street corner crying, praying to be worth no money. Be like, because I had a negative net worth and negative bank accounts and negative other things. I was like, just zero, like, awesome. Let's start from there. And then obviously, like, you know, figuring out things that I did wrong and being, you know, having a couple of decades of experience is I've just made more mistakes and then learn to recover and how to, and some of them not being, not all of them are fatal, you know, to organizations, but also not fatal to me personally. Like they don't come take your kids, you know, they don't, you know, my wife still loves me. My kids still love me. There's, you know, there's certain things to caveat and to create some granularity to that. And so now we do a lot of commercial real estate, some land assemblage, some adaptive reuse and some development projects. A lot of that's in central Texas. We are based out of Northern California, but have done investments all over the country. Awesome. I love to hear the fact that you are still going after you know a tough stretch back in 07, 08. Real quick before we, you know, before we get into all the deal discussions, you started in flipping single family houses, I'm assuming. How long did you do that for before? Obviously, you know, you said you've been in it 20 years, but how long did you do the primarily focused on single family flips? 
you know, I did that until, I mean, for a long time, that became a core component of my business. And so what I did is I just say, added additional legs to the stool of what I did in about 2014, 2015, I want to say 2015, I scaled it up to go even, you know, bigger, more nationwide. And so I was involved in flips from 20, 2002 or three until about 2020, you know, and as far as, again, that became a very core component of our business. We added these additional legs. And so we didn't completely pivot and be like, forget what got us here. That's also one of the things that I see people doing is they give up the thing that makes them money. They give up their day job. They give up the thing that was making them money. And then they're like, ah, now I'm going to go get in commercial real estate. And then the reality is, is like when you start anything new is you're going to make mistakes from that. And so if you go give up the golden goose, there's times that, you know, you need to infuse more capital in that. And so if you're, and I read this years ago, as far as from a real estate developer is like people one out of 10 deals or maybe 10% of deals go bad. And what happens is they start small. And so they do a single family house, a single family house, or maybe they develop a few houses. But what happens is that as the deal sizes grow and grow and grow over time, that 10th deal that does go bad. So the first nine are successful and then the, it's the 10th deal that goes bad. Well, oftentimes that 10th deal is bigger than all of the previous nine deals combined. They've just like doubled up and doubled up and doubled up and doubled up. And then when they go bust, they get completely wiped out. And that's why you've seen a lot of home builders and other people. And so I just kind of, from an outsider's perspective, looked at that and said, hey, there's some things that you need to do is just still some core competencies, generating cash flow. And if you're a doctor, that's awesome. Make a million dollars a year or half a million dollars a year or whatever you're doing. Like now don't go, you know, give up one job that makes $500 an hour to go do one that makes $25 an hour, you know, being a property manager. Right. And that's been my opinion. And that's why up until 2020, you know, we were still doing that. It just, there was a lot, the profit margins kept getting squeezed down, squeezed down, squeezed down. And then it became harder and harder to do deals. And actually, we're getting ready to turn some of that stuff back on because we believe there's some distress coming down the pipeline, more so in the commercial than the residential. But you know, it's you know being an opportunistic investor as well. So yeah, of that of 20 years, I'd say 17 of them I've been flipping houses. Well, it sounds like you just mentioned that you're assessing the opportunity to restart that faucet a little bit, which is cool because I think a lot of people. You know, especially from some of our guests that we've had on, they hear, you know, I've syndicated 1500 doors. I have thousands of doors and all that I've developed, you know, hundreds of doors, all this stuff. And they, a lot of people start with flipping houses because it's a great way to build capital. And like you said, they want to get to the next level, but they just forget how to, they're bread and butter, you know? And I think it's cool that you continue to do that, but you continue to add and grow your business. So you're not just focused on one niche. You're able to, to develop and you're able to syndicate and all that good stuff. Yeah. And take that, you know, with a grain of salt is I am not particularly doing those things. And that was one of the things that I discuss in my book is like the reason that I became a millionaire before 30. And, and I think it's oftentimes I call this the white knuckling or creating a goal. Like you see it from the standpoint is you can go lose 20 pounds 
I would say most people can go lose 20 pounds and they do. But what happens is they put on 25 pounds afterwards because they didn't, you know, change the system in which they're operating. And so they white knuckled it in that they just, you know, did something that was unsustainable. Like I could just not eat for the next 30 days and probably lose 20 pounds, you know, like that's not a very healthy way of doing it. But what happens is I kind of white knuckled success to becoming a millionaire. And so I didn't have systems. It was just based on me brute force. And also because I was very young and naive and just didn't understand how a lot of these things ultimately worked. And so just through like going on market, buying a deal, you know, bludgeoning them. And I happened to be in a good environment in a market that pay, you know, glossed over a lot of the sins or the bad deals that I was doing. The market was appreciating so much. It afforded me the luxury to make more mistakes. And so what happens is I achieved this goal of being a millionaire, but I didn't have systems put in place. And so from that is, and that was at least the pivot that I realized from 2007, 2008 was, hey, there has to be a system that has and leads to predictable and repeatable success. And so from that and from that framework, and so, yeah, we've done 1,200 houses and we've aggregated single family rental portfolios, do those things. but it was like the last 700 of those houses, I couldn't even tell you where they are. And so what it was is I developed and we put together a team and a system to go focus and put those things into, and it didn't require my responsibility. And the reality is, is I'm probably the worst person to do almost anything in my business because I'm like a squirrel, man. Like I'm next shiny object. I'm like, Ooh, that like, Ooh, that. So it's like, I can help put that vision in and me, you know, specifically have that as far as a working area of genius of understanding how to invent and and have some discernment to understand the structure and how it needs to be. But I was like, I'm actually not very good at actually doing those things. So that's why I say that. And that's also off of almost 20 years of experience. And so people are like, hey, you do more than one thing. Be like, yeah, it took me a long, long time. It took me 10, 12 years to get to a place where I could do more than one thing. Absolutely. And I mean, that's another thing, especially with our other hosts, Chris and AJ, they started with single family investment rentals, you know, built the party management. Now they're focused on the syndication side of things, but that's because they built up these systems and processes like you're talking about to give someone the blueprint where they can go do it. Obviously, they can ask you questions if they need if they need to, but sometimes other people are going to take that blueprint, tweak it a little bit and make it more efficient and, you know, generate a repeatable process that's going to have predictable outcomes, which is cool. So now you're focused on the next shiny object, like you mentioned, for the last eight years, I think you mentioned. So now you're doing development, syndications, and you've done what multifamily, net lease, commercial, the whole nine. We talked a little bit before we started recording about an adaptable reuse is what it's called. Adaptive reuse. Yeah. Adaptive reuse. So that's the first time I ever heard that term when you mentioned it earlier. Can you describe this deal that we're going to kind of dive into and how you found, I guess, how you found the deal and what made you want to turn, or I'll, I'll let you explain. I don't want to ruin it. Yeah. So we've done, you know, a handful of other things. And that's also some people who say, well, you've done net lease, you've done some land, you've some multifamily development or this adaptive reuse. And really that's driven off of my 
overarching investment thesis. And so that investment thesis is markets are actually the thing that does most of the work for you. And so what I mean by that is, you know, like I could be a really good operator and, you know, and I equate that to like sometimes being like Michael Phelps, like you can be the Michael Phelps, you're amazing swimmer. But the reality is, is like, even if you're an amazing swimmer and you're going against you know, the current of the ocean or the tide of, or, you know, the tide of the ocean or the current of the river, it's going to be straining to do that. And so what I did was in, in then studying some of these things is like, oftentimes it's just easier to go get in front of the momentum of the wave that is getting ready to pick up. And so that investment thesis was more driven off of market specifics is like there was a population growth, there was some, you know, job growth, there's affordability indexes, and then kind of a demographic catch-all that was happening within these core markets that when I identified, hey, here's these top 10 that I see all of these positive fundamentals in this wave kind of happening is so in 2015, started investing into Austin and San Antonio and some of these central Texas kind of markets is I wish I would have bought a lot more in Austin, but like that took off like a rocket ship. And then where there's opportunities was maybe San Antonio as a whole. And so from that, I was then looking for good deals in those particular markets. And so then I was a little bit more agnostic and to the deal. I was just looking at something from the intrinsic sticks and bricks as a discount to that. So if it's $100, it's worth 100 and I can buy it for 70. I was less concerned about if it was an office building or a piece of dirt or whatever. I was looking from that market that was going to drive the fundamentals and drive all values up. So this particular asset I was working on and working on a hotel deal, a ground up. And actually, maybe I'll take you a step back from that is when I come into a market that I'm not familiar, I'm not, I'm not from San Antonio. I never had even been there before seven, eight years ago, knew very, very little about it other than there was kind of the Alamo. I had heard something about the Riverwalk. So I just knew very little about it at all. So when I came into it, is I do like a deep dive on that market. And I call this the mafia rule is that typically in these secondary or tertiary cities, there's five families, four to five families that control about 80 or 90% of all of the commercial real estate. And so what I do is I would kind of like map out like who owns what, what is their business model? What do they do? And then from that, these five families, I would find opportunities between the fingers of what they did as a whole. Some of them maybe didn't do hotels, or maybe they didn't do office, or they only did multifamily, or they did things. And so what that would do is there was some disparities and big opportunities in an existing market that was favorable and gave me an opportunity to invest in the things that just nobody else was really bidding on. And again, it is... Buying things for less than their value is, again, the core component of this investment thesis that I've been working off of. And then in a market that I think the whole entire market is going to move up or uptick in a certain time period. And so that led to, and I mapped out that this office building was owned by this hotel group. And I was like, why does this hotel group own an office building? Like, it doesn't make sense. And so I, you know, had reached out to them. I talked to them. I 
you know, sent them emails. I mailed them letters. I did stuff. And they're like, yeah, we're not interested in selling it. We're holding it because maybe we're going to want to convert it to a hotel at some point. We bought it cheap for two wooden nickels or something like that. So we're and it was like a 50% vacant office building on all short-term leases. And it, but it's a historic building. It's beautiful. And I was just like, man, that would be a good property to own. As I was building the hotel or getting ready to work on building the hotel next door, I started having more conversations because we were negotiating some use agreements, some other things like that. And then all of a sudden they're like, you know what? We're not going to build a hotel there. We think we'd like to sell that now. Why don't you buy it? And so because I'd had these conversations for years, it was then I became on that short list of the one that ultimately could go buy that property. And again, I'd identified a handful of assets in this particular market that didn't make sense for who they owned it. They owned an oil and gas company from Fort Worth, owned another office building, another. And so like, again, as I mapped out, here's the five families. These are not like that. So the office building I bought, this you know particular asset was again an out of you know, city owner, out of state owner. And so then we looked at it. And then what we try to do is understand the best and highest purpose used for that. The fact that we're building a hotel next door, we probably didn't want to go do another hotel in this building, the office environment. And, you know, COVID, you know, was looking a little bit more challenging multifamily and downtown luxury apartments was there just not very many of them. And so then we were able to run some of the traps and study on those and then say, Hey, we think this works. And we spent a lot of time on the floor plans to configure it. that gave them good uses and good space and then really, you know, develop that. And so we're actually, we just finished that the construction of it turns out it was like one of the worst times ever to be developing, doing stuff over the last couple of years. I have another ground up project, same thing that sucked. Like supply chains have been blown up. We waited two years on switch gear, like the, in the basement, the new electrical panels, like we ordered them two years ago and they just showed up a couple months ago. And that's like, normally those are readily available. Even though we ordered them two years, they just couldn't come available. And so there was cost overruns and you know timeline overruns and everything else. And so there's inherent issues with doing adaptive reuse, but I think the asset is really now well positioned because it's hard to convert buildings. And the fact that we bought it for a good price, even though we spent more than we originally anticipated, we also believe that it's going to be a good long-term asset. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. So when you, and like you said, you're not from Texas, you're not from San Antonio. And when you go to a new market, like you're talking about, 
you mentioned the hotel development. Was that your first deal in this new market? Okay. No. Yeah. So we started doing flips. And so I use those also as kind of like my little scout army that we start, you know, assessing. I'd say after that, we did a 10 unit subdivision. So we built 10 homes. We bought an office building back before there was COVID and we thought office was going to be a pretty good, you know, investment. It's challenged a little bit more right now. And then we started doing some other land deals. And then we bought some and converted some warehouses to some other apartments. And so we, you know, gotten a lot more familiar with the market by the time we did that hotel and this adaptive reuse. That was where my question was kind of leading to is I had imagined going into a market and start with a ground up development of a hotel and then an adaptive reuse on a commercial building is probably more challenging than the way that you approached it. So what, I guess that's like seven years worth of experiences or five years worth of experience of being in that market. So it's not like the first deal I did in that market. Right, right, right. What, I mean, what goes into an adaptive reuse aside from turning offices into apartments? And I mean, you said that control panels took two years, so there's obviously something to do with that. But I mean, zoning and permitting, is that a challenge when it comes to changing the use of a building? It can be. Yeah. So every municipality across the country is different from their zoning and their uses. And so some municipalities, that's super easy. Some, it's very, very challenging and very difficult to do, to convert from one use to another use. Oftentimes in the urban core and downtown, they have commercial or downtown zoning and districts and stuff. And they're open. They're a lot more open to that than a lot of other areas versus like you're trying to do that out in suburbia or a greenfield development. And so I've found that it tends to be, you know, to convert or change from one use to the other is not that difficult in the urban core. And again, but yes, getting permits understanding in the infrastructure of that building. So an office building has a much lower utility use, meaning like, you know, you have a break room and a couple of bathrooms per floor on a typical office, you know, kind of space. Now all of a sudden you go, Hey, there's going to be eight apartments per floor or 10 or however many that, you know, well, that's maybe, you know, eight, 10, 12, 14 bathrooms. That's also washing machines. That's also, you know, toilets and showers and sinks and kitchens and everything else. And so then you, what you have to do is, and I saw some study that they said like only like 2% of the office buildings in the United States would be viable for an adaptive reuse to residential. Part of it is because like the light wells are too deep. So the amount of windows in the facade is too far away the infrastructure in which you would need to, you know, add or build into the building is too, you know, costly. And it would be like, it would be just cheaper to build brand new. Fortunately for this particular asset was, it was a historic building. There was already some, you know, again, it could have been a lot of different things over time. It could have been a hotel. It could have been office. It could have been, you know, multifamily. And so that gave it a little bit more flexibility. It has a lot of windows on it as well. Very costly to you know, replace those, but it was an option. And so when we looked at that is, so you need to upgrade the electrical 
the energy standards are much different today than they were a hundred years ago. There are some buildings. I was actually looking at one in Cincinnati is, so they had, it was a 17 story. It was the first high rise concrete, you know, they call it skyscraper, 17 stories. So they had two elevators, one staircase. Well, the reality is now with new code and fire things, you need a second staircase. You know, the elevators don't or, or don't count towards a an escape. And so you needed to add a second staircase. And so when you looked at that is it was no longer grandfathered in and you needed to add a second staircase to accommodate this no matter what use you plugged into it. And so then that means you got to go carve a portion of the every single floor this concrete building down 17 stories or buy the property next door and build an external staircase. And then from a timing matter is like that becomes too economically infeasible to do. And so that's why, again, that like that 2% sounds probably about right. I didn't validate that or check it. And then from that is you have to then understand like, what is the cost to do that? What does it cost for your existing you know, transformers, utilities, the capacity, the, you know, fire sprinklers, the, you know, toilets, the sewers, and also the taller the building is like, so the air conditioning and now energy standards are a lot more robust. And so be like, now you have to accommodate where before that HVA system was sufficient for an office, but it's not sufficient. And so now you have to then upgrade or put all new mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and build out the internal components. We structured this deal as an opportunity zone. So we were looking specifically for an asset that was going to cost double of what our purchase price was because of the caveats of an opportunity zone. And so we're already kind of looking for an asset that represented a very significant value add and that a lot of other buildings don't warrant that or you can't buy them for cheap enough to do that you know very very heavy value add component to it so when you're underwriting this kind of deal obviously there's a fairly long hold time for construction and building everything out what's your when you underwrote this deal what was your projected hold time before you could even start leasing anything up yeah so and that's the other component of being an opportunity zone an opportunity zone is a 10 year plus you know investment. And so it is, you're getting favorable tax treatment of capital gains when you invest into an opportunity zone. And because this was also a historic building, we we're able to tap into some historic tax credits and some state tax credits. And so then those represent, and these come out over five-year kind of time period once it's been placed into service. And so we kind of went to that as like, this is going to be a longer term hold. Again, from that standpoint is like, we were like, hey, the market, we believe in this market long-term. We were looking for something to be a long-term hold. And so then it took a couple of years to redevelop and rebuild this entire, you know, the guts of this building. We're hoping to be more done in the 12, you know, to 15 month kind of time period. But again, the last couple of years, everything was constrained and there was all kinds of issues that we faced with supply chain, manufacturing, HVAC, you know, switch gear, all of those. And then it pushed it out to a two year. And so now lease up is starting now. Fortunately, rent have gone up pretty significantly as well. And so that helped with that. But of course, you know, investors are, you know, wanted to be getting distributions now, uh, you know, on year three versus, 
just starting lease up. And so again, it's my crystal ball is very hazy. Actually, if it was at all accurate, any fraction of it was accurate, I probably wouldn't be doing real estate. So in the meantime, I guess I'm just going to stick to real estate and and keep doing this because I love it. (laughs) So, I mean, I have a pretty good understanding of what your typical financing structure looks like on a multifamily acquisition from a syndication standpoint. Is this type of deal closer related to a new development when it comes to the financing structure of it? Yeah. So, I mean, so you had an acquisition and then you had a big construction component. And so I think we, we bought it, you know, for 11 million, we had 12, $13 million worth of remodel. And then that's financed in a combination of a senior acquisition and then a construction. So it's a bridge, you know, debt, but again, it's a very big bridge, you know, construction type component. And then there was some caveats in that to the capital stack with some pace financing and the monetizing of the state tax credits. And so it just became those, you know, when you added up your capital stack, then a little sleeve is state tax credit, a little sleeve is the pace, then a little bit is the construction part of the, you know, senior lender, and then the actual acquisition price of that. And then that was earned or those draws were drawn out like a new development, like a construction process over that time period. And then you just bake in as far as your interest reserves and your carry cost and all of those things. And so you construct out, but in, you know, what's advantageous of existing, you know, value add is you like, you have rents coming in during that time period, but you just have to map out as like, Hey, we're going to empty out this building. We're going to have no rents. We did have some rents, but that was on the commercial spaces, the street level retail. And then we uh, there's also a parking garage. And so we're also getting some parking revenues, but not enough to pay the mortgage. We really needed to get on the other side of construction. It would have taken so much longer. And the fact that you're taking out the entire electrical to the building, the entire HVAC to the building, the entire water to the building, it just would have taken us so much longer if we couldn't do it all at once. Right. And so I know you said it's a longer term hold, longer term investment, and there's some opportunity zone rewards and incentives there. What's the target IRR on a deal like this? You're looking for development deals, adaptive reuse, or develop. We're, we're typically looking at 20%, you know, kind of plus IRRs just because that's, you know, a higher kind of risk profile versus maybe something that's, you know, teens you know, on a traditional kind of value add piece. And so, yeah, that's going to kind of say we're trying to push into the twenties on something that's development related. That makes sense. And is there any opportunity to do a refinance within this hold period or do you just? Yeah. So, yeah. So now we're anticipating doing that right now, but be finished on least up. So we just pushed out actually the debt to the end of the year. And so we should be at least leased up and then, yeah, refinance, get permanent, you know, capital. We'll see where interest rates are. When we underwrote it a couple of years ago, interest rates were not where they were. That's going to hurt, you know, cash flows as higher interest rates are there. And so maybe some of the distributions and some of those things don't completely align. I may just be worse at this than everyone else, but I have yet to have a pro forma work perfectly. I've modeled out and done a lot of different deals. And I was like, yet, I've yet to have one that's landed on 
Some areas are up, some areas are down, some has been left, some is right. They still kind of are typically within a band of what we're anticipating, but for different reasons. And, you know, right now it's a very difficult environment from a capital markets, from a lending, from a debt. And so we hope that by kicking the can down the road to the end of the year, you know, that that maybe we have some more optics on how things are going could be completely worse. I don't know. Again, my crystal ball, I look into it and I'm like, damn it. I don't know what, but we don't want to go to permanent financing right now. I think you're in the same boat as a lot of people. (laughs) Is there, I mean, is there anything else that I didn't ask about when it comes to this sort of deal? I mean, this is a new new type of deal for me and I've never really heard of it before. So I was curious, you know, mainly for myself, but I know our listeners are going to get something out of it. Is there anything that I didn't really touch on when it comes to this type of deal? Well, I mean, just development as a whole, it's harder to do. And because it's harder to do it also, there's less people doing it. And there's, Mm. you know, a lot of complexity in creating the capital stack and then understanding how you finance this. And, but that also means that there's more things that can go wrong. There's more things, the more complexity you get to something is the more opportunities that of things that you didn't think about. I am not all knowing, even that I trust and I have teams of experts and people that have done these for long times and, you know, very awesome contractors and designers and engineers and everyone else. There's still always surprises in every project that we've ever encountered. And even you know, so these adaptive reuses tend to be even more so because like you think it's going to be this and then you open up the wall and you're like, huh, that's interesting, you know, versus like new construction. Again, you're not discovering things that you didn't know. There's other risks to new construction, you know, like G lumber prices went from $300 a you know, board foot to $1,500 a board foot in the span of like that. And you'd be like, does that blow up your deal? Sometimes it does. And so and that's why these development or adaptive reuse redevelopment deals, you know, should warrant a higher return in a profile. The opportunity zones, I, we didn't dive into that is I see a lot of people that were using the opportunity zone benefits to get up to like a 12 or 15% kind of return. And so when I tell you that IRR projection was that was without the opportunity zone benefits. And so really you're looking at high 20 or even into the 30% IRR you know, equivalent with this opportunity zone. And so what we believe is that that should be icing on top of the cake. The good, the deal should be good from the get-go that even regular capital should want to invest into that particular deal. Not that the opportunity zone or the tax benefits was wagging the dog, so to speak, you know? And so what we look at that is the more complexity, the more things that have, you know, potentially go wrong, but there can be higher rewards That also means that there's sometimes longer time periods. Understanding that from an investor, from an LP is making sure that, you know, aligning those expectations, you know, there's things. And and unfortunately I've had to have some of these conversations with some LP investors be like, I know I told you that projection, you know, three, two years ago, you know, on some deals two, three years ago, I go, but you can almost just throw that away. Like, I mean, I was like, I, you know, interest rates are, you know, even where we thought and stress tested, it's even beyond some of those. And so, you know, distributions are going to be constrained. But again, we try to bake in a lot of stuff just for the fact that it's going to be unknown as a whole. One of the other things is I see, even we're talking about this before we 
gone on the call is that there's this allure to being the GP versus an LP. And I was mm-hmm. like, it's everybody kind of like, you know, like, man, I invest and I do, I invest in some deals as LPs, not necessarily real estate, but things that are less real estate related. Mm-hmm. But the GPs like, man, it sucked being on all these phone calls, you know? And it's like, I know I told you this was going to be done, but it's not. I know I told you it was going to cost this, but it's cost more. Or just like, I can't even like control or, you know, you have so much counterparty risk that you're unaware of. I have one project that a lender's failing on. The lender's not paying out our construction draws. Like, when did I need proof of funds from the lenders? Because of the constraints of what's happening in the capital markets, that is proposing and not this particular project, but it creates new levels of issues. The same thing, like toilet flappers out of commercial toilet were no longer available. And we're like, well, how long do we wait? And you're like, what is that change order to go? It'd be like, all right, well, let's just go to a different manufacturer. Well, you know, that commercial toilet and the configuration and the hanging hardware is completely different for another manufacturer. And so to do that, it's actually a $200,000 change order to go to a different manufacturer. And so you're like, mm. I don't want to pay $200,000 to get you know, no marketable difference between yeah. this toilet and that toilet. Like nobody's giving you a different you know, rent rate. Nobody's leasing it out for a different price point. But now you're just lighting $200,000 on fire because this toilet flapper's not available. So then you have to go through and you look at it and be like, when's it going to be available? When does this become a critical issue? Like when can, does it actually stop the progress of the project that we have to make this decision that, hey, we got to close up the walls, we got to change out the hardware, do something else. So now you're evaluating that standpoint. And then you go be like, can we manufacture our own toilet flappers? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, what's 3D printing capabilities? Like, you know, now you're doing, you're looking at things that you've never, ever thought you'd ever have to encounter. And again, that is just how the environment. And I go making sure that are potentially having some of these conversations. If you're an LP talking to GP, are they, you know, willing to try to figure out solutions to two hard things that maybe don't have a right choice. So now all of a sudden you're looking and evaluating all these different variables and be like, do you just pay the $200,000, but it hurts, you know, investors and the performance. Do you come up with some kind of alternative? How can you wait? And so now you have a not a right answer. There is no right answer, but then evaluating something and that's real life. And real life is that there is no right answer. And at least unfortunately in school and a lot of kids in school is they're just looking for the right answer because it was something that already happened. And then you plug into this, but the reality is like you're getting tested real time with no real answers and they're both wrong on whatever you're going to, all the answers are wrong. They're gradient versions of it. And now you have to do with incomplete information, make a decision off of that. And so that becomes what is very difficult about this business development, redevelopment, investing, you know, everything else is that is an imperfect science to what you're doing. And so there is sometimes a benefit to just being an LP. So I'm still working a job just like someone else is. And why I invest as an LP with other people is I'm looking for opportunities, the things that make me money that don't take me more time. Right. Being the GP is a job. And oftentimes, and I say that, and I think we talked about that earlier, is like, don't give up that golden goose sometimes 
for the $25 an hour job of now being a property manager or answering the calls for the toilets or leasing it up and doing those other things is making sure to appropriately allocating your time, unless that's what your passion is. You're like, I, God put me on this planet to be a property manager. If he did, please contact me because I need those people. <laughs> I need those people that love doing those things because I don't like it. It's the bane of my existence. It's interesting to hear you talk about the, I really liked what you said about the fact that you have to make decisions with no right. Like you have to come up with solutions that are both wrong. And I think that's something that I've never heard it phrased that way, but it, you come up, especially in real estate, you come across that quite a bit. And I know there's other facets in life where you got a decision to make and they're both incorrect. And you better hope the one that you chose is a better outcome than the alternative type deal. Or if it doesn't, you have to be able to adapt to whatever the repercussions may be. And in a market that is very uncertain right now, I'm honest, and I don't want to take up too much time today, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on the current, and this doesn't have anything to do with the deal that we're talking about, but what are your thoughts on the interest rate fiasco we've seen in the last few months? And how should people plan to combat that with you know, variable rates and rate caps and all that stuff? Are you looking at that at all? Yeah. I mean, we could spend an entire show on that. And I don't know that I have any right answers to that. Again, as far as the multiple options, you know, and it's maybe the lesser of two evil. And I think everyone's circumstances and situation is unique to that particular property, to a rate cap, not a rate cap, you know, the cost of that, the hedging of it, the cost of getting something that's floating. I think we're at the end of the QT. So quantitative tightening as far as you know, their trigger up the other 25 bips or 0.25% interest rates is I think this is in historically looking at it because I do spend a lot of time in data and study this is that on average from the first rate hike to the first rate cut, I think it was like 19 months was the average over the last 100 years. The Fed historically overdoes things almost with 100% accuracy is that they overdo things. And so what happens and what they did in this situation is they raised rates so rapidly is that now it's breaking other portions of the economy. And so to try to get, you know, inflation and to not, you know, really create a a very detrimental pain like they did in the 70s. In the 70s, you know, they let inflation run a little bit more rampant. And so in to combat that, they you know raise rates much faster to try to get that under control and now what has happened is instead of tightening they've broken the banks and they've broken a lot of the credit markets and part of that was that in 2011 you know and even into early 20 or not 2011 2021 2021 and early 2022 the fed was giving guidance to banks to buy long go long on assets buy treasuries buy some of these things that were long dated because the interest rate was zero. And then when they jacked up rates really quick, it made a bunch of banks insolvent from, and they don't have to mark these bonds or these you know T-bills or CMBS things to market. That's just not how it works. That's normal for people to not mark those down to market. But what happens is as now there's more fluidity of capital and there's these bank runs, 
And we had these conversations about some people that they're like, man, the banks don't have the money. It's all a con game, a confidence game. And I go, that's exactly what fractional reserve banking is. There's never been all the money in the bank sitting there ready for you to take it out when you want. It is about having confidence in the system as a whole. And we're at an all-time low of confidence. And actually, there's a book called The Fourth Turning, which I think is very applicable to this particular time and era that we're experiencing, is that this archetype that is in control politically is, you know, and I don't care if you're on the right or the left, the Trump or the Biden, it's a bunch of old white dudes that, you know, that in the way that they rule is they have a very hard time handing off power to the next generation of people that are going to governor or rule and the ruling class. And so what happens is every time in these four main archetypes in this particular archetype, either the Trump or Biden era, like they, it's a violent handing off of power or the baton to the next generation. And if you look back to that, that was during, you know, World War II, World War One, the Civil War, you know, like, and you go that that's just in our country, you also map this out to other countries as well as every time this particular archetype is in control, and then hands off to this next generation, is there's all kinds of volatility, the benefit is this next generation of ruling, you know, kind of class opens up a new golden era of opportunity. And so I hope and pray that we avoid massive World War III or complete economic meltdown, but those are within the spectrum of probabilities that I see as potentially happening. Maybe they correct it and write the ship, but again, my crystal ball does not effectively predict what happens. I see that as a potential of gradient of probability. And so then now making sure to prepare yourself for that. I like things that have cash flowing income. I like things that do well in trend in, in inflationary environments. People still need places to live. People still need places to operate some of their businesses. So industrial, you know, you know, flex industrial apartments, mobile home parks, like a lot of these other things just still work. I don't care what it is. If the dollar goes to you know, up a gazillion or down a gazillion, like those fundamentals are still going to be there. Logistics of moving and, you know, supplying, there may be a lot of volatility in between till we get to those other sides of those resetting. But again, a lot of geopolitical, there's a lot of debt that is accumulating in, in the overarching financial system. I think if you look at, you know, Ray Dalio, and read a lot of his stuff on principles and short-term and long-term debt cycles. We're coming into some, the crux of this. So it could be, and when you print money at this scale, it is lighting the fuse and like we're playing a musical chairs and it goes until the music stops and no currency has ever lasted forever in the history of the world. No currency has kind of lasted forever except for gold. And I'm not like a gold bug, you know, kind of, you know, per se, but I was like, what happens is, you know, in this thing is that you go print a bunch of money and that could happen in three months. That could happen in three years. That could happen in 30 years. Like, and again, it's like, I don't know. I mean, you see this from the fundamentals is like, at some point, if you just live beyond your means, racked up a bunch of credit card debt, at some point, you're going to have to pay the piper. We can't print our own amounts of money. But again, what happens at some point, 
people go, hey, we don't like you printing this money. And it comes all crashing down. Is that in three months? Is that three years, 30 years? I have no idea. But do you still, and in the meantime, I don't think anybody can be faulted for doing things. And those are black swan type events. You can't be faulted by like, I'm still going to just do status quo. I'm not going to go hunker down in a little hole and hide and wait, you know, because Robert Kiyosaki has been saying this since 2011. He's like, it's going to all crash, go get golds, you know, get gold, ammo, food, sit down, hide in a hole, do these other things. But I go, man, that's 12 years that has been that if you're hiding in a hole, not doing any deals, you know, you could have missed out on a whole lot of life waiting for this black swan event. And he may be correct at some point, but again, you know, I don't think you're flawed for going out and doing activity and working on the fundamentals of real estate. And if, you know, a black swan event wipes you all out, that sucks. I mean, I don't think anybody's out there predicting, you know, wanting you to be accurate and to foretell the future. If you can give me those lotto numbers so that I can stop doing real estate and I'll just, you know, hit that billion dollar Powerball number. Actually, I'd still do real estate. I'm lying. I would do it anyway, even if I had a billion dollars. That's the deal junk in you. It's true. Awesome, Jake. Well, again, I don't want to, I don't, we don't need to go on a whole tangent about that. I just was curious because I know you're very educated and have a lot of experience in this realm, in this industry. Just to wrap it up, you know, Jake, you are a host of the Passive Wealth Principles and an author of Catching Knives. I highly encourage everyone that's listening to go check out those or the book and the podcast. Is there anywhere else that you'd like people to connect with you? I'm most active. Like I said, I got like 7,000 followers on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. I've been told I have a TikTok place, you know, thing. I don't manage it. I don't know. I think it's the same content that goes on Instagram. I actually respond and manage and do my own Instagram. So at jake.realestate. And again, the book catchknives.com. We're getting ready to roll out some new stuff and then transition. We're actually working on book number two. That won't be out until maybe the end of this year or next year, but we're starting to put out some more content. We actually think that the catching knives investing in distressed commercial real estate is going to be very, very relevant right now. Awesome. Well, I know I will go check out the book myself and I hope everyone else that's listening does as well. Jake, thank you again for your time today. And I value your story and explanation of adaptive reuse. Am I saying that right? Got it. Nailed it. Awesome. You're you're an expert now. (laughs) Thanks, Jake. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.